Well, if you want to turn with me to, your, uh, to that chapter that we read in your Bibles, Acts chapter 17. And we'll be looking at mainly, the, the, well, the whole passage really that we read. But I want to read just one verse and then uh, we'll pray. And that's verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So let's commit our time to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you now, we realize, Lord, that we are so weak and we need the Spirit of our God to help us, Lord, to understand your word before us. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon us, uh, speaker and hearer, and we pray, Lord, that you would meet all of our needs this morning. You know each and every one of us here. You know us inside out, Lord. You know our us, us as individuals, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless us each this morning. And Lord, we pray that your name would be lifted high, that your name would be glorified, and that we would see the wonderful things done by our God. So, Father, speak, we pray, as we come to you now, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, in this chapter, this is a very well known chapter where Paul is preaching to uh, the men or people at Athens. Uh, and this is his Mars Hill uh, sermon. Um, this is the second missionary journey, and he's come to Athens, which at the time is a very important city. It's not the most important. I think the most important city was uh, Corinth at the time. That was the political and commercial center of the world, but Athens was still uh, a very important city culturally, culturally speaking, um, it brought about, well, not the city itself, but this, people from the city uh, were, uh, many, many of them were, were philosophers, and it gave the world people like Aristotle, uh, Epicurus, which, who we read about later on, and Zeno, again, who we read about later on, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Uh, and Paul comes to them now, and he challenges their belief, their philosophy, something that they've grown up with for many, many years, he comes and challenges them and tells them that all these things are actually wrong, they're incorrect, and of course he points them to the truth. Now that doesn't sound today, does it, too dissimilar from our own country here. I think since back in, was it 2007, uh, we uh, had David Cameron as... Um, Prime Minister, and I think that he referred to his finest hour as the redefinition or redefining marriage. And it was a truly horrific event, and it appears that this country has just gone downhill steadily, and it appears to be going faster and faster ever since. But this country appears that it wants to lead the world in these things. We could look at London and think, yes, that's the, uh, that is the center of the world when it comes to finance, uh, closely followed by New York. But our country, our politicians, they want Britain to be leading the world in, well, things like that, I've already said, which are truly contrary to the word of God. But also they want to lead the world in, in uh, tackling climate change and pollution and all that sort of rubbish. Well, it's not complete rubbish, perhaps, but you know they want to be uh, net zero by 2030, and they want to lead the world in these things. They want to be the 
the centre, really, of, of it all. They want to have a name for themselves. So really, where's, where's Paul when you need him? Yeah, we, we need uh, people, don't we, to stand up and proclaim the truth of God's word, like Paul. Uh, and not to be ashamed, not to be afraid, to be bold and to be courageous. And to stand up and challenge, really, uh, the authority around us that is so clearly, blatantly godless and, and wrong. So Paul here, he, he d- deals with the people and he, he de- he, he's got, there, there are three things I want to look at this morning. There's corruption, conviction and command. They all begin with C, so hopefully that makes it easier for us to remember. So first of all, Paul, in these first few verses from 16 uh, through to uh, 18, I think, or maybe a bit, bit more, we see that Paul sees their corruption. In verse 16 it says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw that the city was wholly given over to idolatry. So Paul, while he was waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy, was wandering around Athens and he sees all the idols that they worship, all the false gods that they worship worship, all the paganism, and this stirs him, this provokes him within himself, because God, Almighty God, Jesus Christ, was not the object of their worship, as it should be, and Paul couldn't remain silent in that situation, and that's a challenge, I think, to all of us here, isn't it, if you're a believer this morning, and we go into situations where they are so obviously not worshipping God, they are completely godless, and they are doing, doing things contrary to the law of God, perhaps in schools, as uh, school governors or something, or, or even uh, local government. Does that ch- not challenge us to actually stand up and proclaim the truth? I know it's a very hard thing to do when you know that you've got probably 99% of the people there against you, which is what the situation would have been here for Paul. He was on his own. Now, Paul couldn't remain silent. He had to speak in verse 17. Therefore, he disputed in the synagogues with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. So he did it day in and day out. He was not ashamed. He was not afraid. Now, today, I think... We we could go along with everybody and say that they want to know the truth. But something else that people do is they they say what's true for them may not be true for someone else. Your truth, or that may be true for you, but my truth is different. That's something that I'm sure all of us have heard. And not only does it sound strange, it really is strange, isn't it? Surely there's truth and there is lies. There are lies. There is one truth and there are plenty of lies. But it's no different really in Paul's day. There is the fact that there is truth and Paul is preaching that truth, God. And that there are many, many lies, all their idols which were made by the hands of men and worshipped. And, you know, for the likes of you and me, I'm sure we can think about that and think how, how ridiculous that is. And surely the person who actually does all the sculpting, all the making of those things, surely deep down they know 
they know that that thing, whether it's wood or stone, is just wood or stone. Surely they know that. But we've got to remember things like in the Old Testament we read of Elijah. He, he, he showed them really, didn't he? He showed the prophets of Baal really for what they really were. He exposed them. I remember um, years ago now speaking to a, a Muslim man in Red Hill and he firmly believed that Muhammad would be the one to um, intercede for him. He believed that Jesus would be the one to intercede for the Christians. And he believed that there would be other prophets who would intercede for their so-called followers. How wrong is he? How wrong can, can he get? There is only one God and but one way to God. A man once said, if you want to get rich quick, then what you should do is you should invent a religion. Now, the man who said that was L. Ron Hubbard. If Many of you, I'm sure, who know, you know who that is. But if you don't know who that is, he is the founder of the Scientology movement. And that's just weird. It's really strange stuff. It's completely wrong. So we see lies all around us. And Paul here was surrounded by pagan worship, which was essentially a lie. There are lies, not just about faith, but there are lies everywhere. Lies in the media... Lies in the newspapers, everything. And there are some who are stirred up to speak the truth. Some who, they don't profess to be Christians, but I believe that they, they want to do what's right, and they do, they speak the truth. But some do nothing. And I'm afraid to say that there are many Christians who would be numbered amongst that group, some who do nothing. Now, I'm not saying I'm not. You know, it's very easy just to keep your head down, not argue with things, and just get on with it. But why do we do nothing? Why? The answer is very simple. It's because we're afraid. It's because we are afraid of man. If we were to read Proverbs 29, we see that the fear of man brings a snare. And a snare, once it's got hold of you, it's difficult to get off, isn't it? We use snares to catch rabbits and other things like that, and... Uh, the more they fight against them, they, the, the tighter they get. The fear of man brings a snare. Now, Paul was on his own. Let's remember that. Paul was on his own here. He was waiting for his friends to come along. He was on his own. own. It would have been very easy to, for him just to keep his head down, just to go around, look at all these things, and then come out. And we couldn't really blame him if he did that, really, because it would be such a difficult situation. So naturally speaking, he had good reason to be quiet, but he didn't. He boldly proclaimed the truth. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enabled him to preach the truth. Now, I don't know if anyone's done, got involved with any street preaching, but sometimes it is so, so difficult. Uh, we've recently got involved, started doing that as a church. Uh, our pastor, James, has started doing that. Uh, with uh, another pastor from a local church. He comes and joins him. And they go into the uh, town centre in Ashford and they preach the gospel. And it's a really hard thing to do, isn't it? Now, I haven't been uh, involved with that. I've done it elsewhere. But it's a really hard thing to do. But with you, when you're with other people, it's, you can encourage other, each other. It's fine. I went tract giving at the, um, not the Jubilee, uh, the coronation. 
And even that, just handing out tracts, it's something really hard to do. You know, there were three of us, but just giving out that first one. Uh, and, uh, well, a friend of mine, he's from the north, he just sort of went straight into it, hello, and uh, started handing them out and was away. But once you start doing it, 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 it gets easier, doesn't it? Paul boldly proclaims the truth. He was not afraid of man. He feared his God. He wanted to please his God. How do you feel this morning when you're surrounded by lies? Lies everywhere. And the greatest lie of all, of course, is that there is no God. That God does not exist. And there are many, many people who believe that. How do we feel when the whole world is worshipping everything except the one true God? Are we, do we feel that we should stand up and speak? Well, it's a very difficult question, really. I, I think we should. We should feel that we should stand up and speak. And I hope in some cases that we do. And we do follow Paul's example here. In verses 20, 22 onwards, that's when he actually starts to proclaim the, the word of God. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Or in another uh, translation, might might say very, very religious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. So it's as if they're being very, very inclusive. They wanted to include all their false gods, but in case there was one that they'd missed out, they put this altar and wrote this inscription to the unknown God. They didn't wish to perhaps offend anybody. And that's something that people are scared of today, isn't it? They're too scared to offend people. They don't want to offend people because they don't want people to sort of to, to hate them, really. When ultimately, I think uh, to take offence is, well, it's, it's our choice, isn't it? We choose to be offended. We don't have to be offended. But these people were very, very religious or superstitious. They worshipped, as I've already said, they worshipped everything except God. So Paul has seen the corruption of, these, of their hearts, the corruption of their lives, and now he acts upon his own conviction. Paul proclaims the truth. He makes God known. And we know that Paul has to do that. He says in Corinthians, he says, Woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel, if I do not preach Christ crucified. He had to tell them the truth. And of course the truth, when it concerns God, it's offensive, isn't it? It's offensive and it's divisive. People are divided on the truth. No one likes to be told that they're wrong. And that's one of the difficulties that people face when you preach in the open air. You'll see many people will shout at you, tell you that you are wrong. People don't like to be told that they're bad people, that they're doing wrong things. And we know, I'm sure we all know here, that we are sinners, that we are bad people, because the Bible tells us so. But it's to have someone else tell us that, it hurts, doesn't it? But it's true. 
We are sinners. We are bad people. And yet there are some people who profess to be Christians who would hate the fact that you call them a sinner. If we look at the early preaching life of uh, John Wesley, he went into some really fancy churches in London. When I say fancy churches, you know, they were just very well-dressed people and uh, they were very wealthy people who went to church because they thought it was the right thing to do. But when he went in there and told them that they were sinners in need of a saviour, they didn't like that. They threw him out. And it wasn't until he started preaching in the open fields in some really poor country villages where they knew that they were sinners and that his, his ministry then flourished and men and women, children, boys and girls were converted and brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does Paul do here when he corrects their wrongdoing? He starts from the very beginning, Genesis. And that's what I think many of us need to do today if we were to speak to people, family members, whoever, who profess to not believe in God. We need to start at the very beginning. I have a very, well, it's a sad situation in my own family, not my immediate family, but my, my brother-in-law. This is recorded, isn't it? Okay. Well, someone I know... <laughs> Um, you know, he's, he's brought up to go to church his entire life. He's older than me, and he's only just turned his back on everything and says he doesn't believe it. And it's, it's really sad. But our, our instinct is to take him back to the beginning. Because it's at the beginning where people get lost. If they don't believe it, they, they can... It appears that they only ever believe uh, what atheists believe, evolution... But if we start at the beginning, if you get your foundations right, then everything else should fall into place. So that's what Paul does here. He starts at the beginning. In verse 24, he says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. So to understand where we are going, for these people in Athens, to understand where they are going, they need to know where they've come from. And that is something that all of us need to know today. If, as atheists believe that we are here by chance, and that's nothing new, by the way, that's nothing that's come about since um, Charles Darwin, that's actually been about since the time here. These uh, philosophies that we, that we read about, the Stoics and the um, Epicureans, some of them taught that everything happened by chance. But we need to know where we're going. If, if we came here by chance, then where on earth are we going? Surely there's nothing, nothing to, to, to go to. But to understand really what we are going to, where we are going, we need to know where we have come from. If we were to be dropped in the middle of nowhere, not told where we were, not given a map, but told to get somewhere, that would be almost impossible, wouldn't it, to do? We need to know, we need to find out where we are. And I think that's part of the, the British Army training. They, they'll drop them in Dartmoor, tell them where to get to, and they've got to find their way there. But they will give them a map. You know, if we know where we've come from, in this case here, God has created the heavens and the earth. God made the world and all things therein. God made you and me this morning. If we know that for certain, and we know that we are going back to God, we know that that is the, our, our, our journey in life. And only those who obviously believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will 
enter into the presence of, of him. So Epicureans, they, they taught that matter always was. They taught that God did not create and that everything came by chance and that the chief end of men was to live happy lives, healthy lives, and to avoid pain or, uh, or illness somehow. I'm not sure how they would do that. But then at the end, there was annihilation. So there's nothing to live for. The Stoic philosophy, they, they taught that they should master themselves. They should become their own masters. And there were many others that, they, uh, that believed different things. That Some believe that God is a part of everything, that he can't create himself. But in verse 26, we read that Paul says that God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. In verse 27, they, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from ev- every one of us. The fact is that we as human beings, we are made in the image of God. The people here, Paul was saying, you are made in the image of God. So you should search for him. You should look for him. Now I'm sure some of you perhaps, I don't expect you to sit down and watch the whole thing, but some of you may have seen parts of Toy Story with your children, grandchildren. But in that uh, children's Film. There's a uh, a sim. There's about three or four of them, I think. But they they all have a similar sort of um, storyline where the toys they get lost and they have to go try and find their way back to their owner. And there's one part in one of them which my children watched fairly recently, where the toys appear to be happy where they are. They've been separated from their owner, but they appear to be happy. But Woody, the main character, he says to them, "Look, what's what's written on your foot?" Because that's where he, Andy, the boy, that's where he put his name. He put his name on the feet of all his toys. He said, what's written on your foot? Whose name is that? It's Andy. We've got to get back to him. And what Paul is saying here is, you are made in the image of God. We are made in his image. We should get back to God. We, we are on a journey. We need to, to find God. And in fact, that there is, deep down within us all, there is an altar in our own heart. Now, one of this morning, is the altar in your heart, does it say to the unknown God? Or does it say, Jesus Christ? I'm sure in the hearts of many people, it is written to the unknown God, and they wish to keep it that way. They'll happily celebrate certain things like Christmas and Easter, and they'll go along with the crowds, and they'll get get involved with all the excitement of it all. But deep down, when, you st- when, when they start learning about the Lord Jesus Christ, how he came into the world, and then how he died upon that cross, they'll turn their faces, put their hands up, and they'll like, no, I don't want to know. That's the case for so many people. In verse 28 and 29, we read, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, For we also are his offspring, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the, God, the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. Paul is now contradicting everything that they've ever known, everything that they've ever been taught. 
that God does not live like men, being needing to be served in some way. You'll see that across the across the world, there'll be wherever there's there's Buddhists and other things. They have these idols, don't they? And they put bowls of fruit or, or things in them, as if they're serving them. But how often do you see that fruit actually being taken by that particular idol and and eaten? We never see that, do we? They're just lumps of wood. They're just lumps of stone. You, we cannot serve them. But God does not need us, really. We, you know, we are to serve him, but God does not need us. In fact, it's the other way around. We are in desperate need of God. We need him because we have just read that he gives breath. He gives life. He gives us all that we need. It comes from him. Therefore, we, are, we stand in great need of him. And there are so many people today who don't actually realize that. They acknowledge that there is something missing. You'll see many people who do that. They appear to have wealth, riches, and all that this world could offer. But so often they'll say, actually, there's, there's something missing. I can't quite put my finger on it. Well, I know the answer. I'm sure you know the answer. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes that that God has put eternity on the hearts of men. Everyone. We have got eternity written on our hearts. We know that there's something beyond, that there's something that we're going to. Deep down, we can't possibly believe and men women can't possibly believe that at the end of our lives is annihilation some profess they do but deep down they they hope don't they They, there must be a hope for something beyond for heaven but what they don't realize is that the answer the answer to their problems is actually so close so close indeed in verse 28 we read for in him we live and move and have our being so he's as close as we are, we are moving. He gives us the ability to move. He actually gives us the very breath that we breathe. When we breathe in, he gives us that breath. God is closer than we realize, than we think. Now the people then, they had many, many problems. And people today have similar problems. Their sin. And that the judgment is coming. And that there is a place for those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are told that place is hell. An awful place. That problem is there before everyone. But the answer to to that problem is so close. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has seen their corruption. He has acted upon his conviction. Or he is acting, sorry, on his conviction. And he now proclaims to them the command of God. In verse 30 and 31 we read, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. So this command is issued by Paul. And in that verse that we read, verse 30, it says, 
ignorance. This, the times of this ignorance, a lack of understanding. And in this case, you could say that it was a willful blindness. And I think that's the case for many people today. They are willfully blind. They are willfully ignorant of the things of God because they do not want to be answerable to a holy God. They want to carry on. They want to do the things that they want to, that, that please them. But what does it say there? It says that God winked at, or in the New King James, we would read God overlooked. He's overlooked their ignorance. That means to take no notice, to, to disregard it. And if we were to look at the Greek, it would actually say a word which is huperido, uh, which is made up of two different words. The first part of it is hooper, which is hyper. That's where we get our, our word hyper from. Edo, which means to remember. Now, if we think of that, you know, just for a little moment, hyper, remember. What do we read in Hebrews? We read that God will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. It says that he will remember no more. You know, we are all familiar with the phrase that we should forgive and forget. And some people might say that God forgives and forgets people's sins. But that's not actually true. He forgives their sins and he remembers no more. If God forgot people's sins, he could easily remember them. And I'm sure Satan would do his best to remind him of our sins. He, do, he, he reminds us of our sins, doesn't he? But what we've got to remember is that God has actually said, no, I remember them no more. And it's hyper. He's gone far above and beyond really what uh, we deserve, what is necessary. But to remember no more. Isn't that a great comfort for believers, for you this morning, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not to forgive and forget to possibly remember at some point in the future, is to forgive and remember no more. Never to be seen again. It's as if God has taken your sins, cast them into the sea, and then put signs up all around it saying, no fishing. They will never be seen again if you are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Because forgetfulness is an imperfection, isn't it? And God is perfect. It's not that he can't, it's that he's chosen not to. But in verse 30, what do we read? But now commandeth all men. It's a command. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And that is to turn away from their sins, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I wonder this morning, have you carried out the command of God? Are you repenting? Are you turning away from your sin? Are you turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith? If you are, then you are saved. Praise God. But if you have not done so, then you are not saved. And you are worthy of God's judgment, God's wrath, where he will cast out all those who do not repent and believe. He will cast them into eternal darkness. Remember that I've already said that the Bible tells us clearly that our consciences bear witness to us. Eternity is written upon our hearts. The world around us, wherever we go, wherever we look, we see that 
God is written as a creator is written everywhere the trees the, the fields whatever we look at we have to admit have to confess that yes God is creator God has made everything and the atheist who says that there is no God why do they actually say that there is no God again it's because they don't want to be answerable to a holy God they want to live their own lives in Psalm 14 we read that the fool hath said in his own heart that there is no God that's the fool the fool has said that there is no God and it's not because he is stupid it's not because they are they're not very intelligent it's because they don't want to be answerable and they think by saying that they don't they can avoid the judgment they can avoid being answerable to a holy God but the fact is that none can escape the people of Athens they were ignorant and God overlooked their ignorance they didn't know any better they'd been brought up to believe all these weird and wonderful things well not wonderful but that's just a you know, terminology there they've been told now the truth so that time of ignorance was now over they had to come to the Lord Jesus Christ now today, no, no one here in this room can plead ignorance. They could not say, well actually I didn't know, I've never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ, I've never heard about what he's done upon the cross. There are many around the world who can still plead that. There are many tribes and very you know, far off places where they have never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, people in, this, in our own country here have never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in some ways you could say that they could plead ignorance. But to you and me here this morning, we cannot plead ignorance. Some of you perhaps have gone to church your entire life. You've come and gone like a door on its hinges. You understand that God exists, but that's not necessarily enough, is it? That's not enough to be saved. You understand who he is, that he is a holy God. Well, that's wonderful, but... That's not enough. Going to chapel, going to church, will not save you. In Acts chapter 4 we read that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must or we must be saved. It's Jesus Christ. We must come to him. We must have faith in him. And if we have faith, surely we should be obedient. Faith, from faith comes obedience to his word, which is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what Christian is. You know, we could all say that we're Christians, but it's quite a loose term, actually. We are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to take up our cross daily. We are to deny ourselves, deny ourselves the pleasures of sin, deny ourselves, really, the ease of life, the ease of the, the things that this world has to offer and we are to serve him why? well in verse 31 we read don't we that judgment is coming and that the man who he has ordained the Lord Jesus Christ it says that he is the man who will come again are you ready? are you ready for that day when the Lord Jesus Christ will come? I hope you are. If you are not a Christian here, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ today, this morning, 
I urge you to put your trust in him, to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, finally, I just want to share with you a little story that I heard. I think I heard it from Alistair Begg, actually. And it was a story of a little boy. And this little boy loved to play around with wood and he liked to carve things with his penknife. And one day he spent a few hours with this lump of wood and he carved a little boat. And he put a mast on it, put a tiny little sail on it. It wasn't a very big boat, it was a very small boat. And he played with it on the local ponds, in the local streams, and he had hours of fun. And one day he lost it. It went over a little, little waterfall or something and it disappeared. And he tried to find it, he spent hours and hours, maybe days, trying to find this little boat, but he could never find it. Many years later, as a grown man, he was walking down his local high street, and there in one of the antique shops, as he looked in the window, in the display in the window, he saw this little battered up boat, and he thought, that's my boat, I made that. So he walked into the shop, and he said to the shopkeeper, look, that little boat in the window, that's mine. And the shopkeeper said, no, 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 if you want that, you've got to buy it. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll pay for it. Whatever, whatever you want for it, I'll give you the money. So he paid the money, and he took that boat. And as he walked home with that boat, he treasured that little boat in his hands, and he started speaking, and he said, you are twice mine. I made you, I lost you, and I've bought you. I've paid for you. That's what we are in the sight of God. God made us. We were lost because of our sin. And he has paid for us. He has bought us with the price of his own blood. He has bought, he has paid for your salvation today. So will you turn to him and be saved? Amen. Well, our last hymn this morning. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched. 474, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is willing, doubt no more.
thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.